Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I love every single character. I have to be every character. I've never been a Catholic nun who's a spiritual advisor to a a death row inmate, and yet I I think I wrote one pretty successfully because it's a human story, it's a human experience, it's a human being, and my job as a theater composer is to empathize and listen and respond. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Ramon Alam. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. We heard another voice just now. June, who is your guest this week? That was Jake Heggie, who the Wall Street Journal described as, quote, the world's most popular 21st century opera and art song composer. I think we all know what opera is, but art song, of course, is vocal music, uh, typically written just for one voice. With piano accompaniment, you might hear them often in a concert or a recital or that kind of occasion. And Jake Heggie is very prolific, but I think he's probably best known for the opera version of Dead Man Walking. I feel like I say this all the time, right? But (laughs) composing music, like, really and truly seems like magic to me. Like, I, I don't know how you conjure a sound that no one ever imagined before, Right? I just, I can't comprehend it, you know? Mm -hmm. So what was your relationship to Heggie's work prior to this conversation with him? I mean, I know exactly what you mean. It feels like there's only a certain number of notes, right? So how many variations can you make? Exactly. And yet they they keep on doing it. So I kept seeing Jake's name, uh, whether it was like a new production of Dead Man Walking or an album he'd released. Um, He did one recently with mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton, who's a former working guest. I think we can call her a friend of the show. Um, Or an upcoming art song cycle that he had written with words by Margaret Atwood. He seemed to be both extremely productive and to always be working with people that I admire. So I checked out some of his pieces and his work is beautiful. Like Unexpected Shadows, the album he did with Jamie Barton and Songs for Murdered Sisters, the collaboration with Margaret Atwood. They're just gorgeous. They're haunting and incredibly moving. So all of our listeners are going to hear your chat, but I understand that Slate Plus subscribers are going to get a little something extra this week. That's right. I asked Jake about opera's image as a sort of niche art product that's only for a very small slice of the population. And I also asked him whether he would like to be more of a household name. Well, that sounds very juicy. (laughs) And bonus segments like those are really just one of so many reasons that you should join Slate Plus today. 
You'll get members-only content like that, but you'll also get zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood. And of course, you'll be supporting the work that we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. And I believe we also have a listener question this week. That is correct, Ruman, a listener who placed some stories in literary magazines in the 1990s, which is to say the era of the self-addressed stamped envelope. But he hasn't submitted since then, and he's looking for some advice on whether it's worth figuring out current submission methods to get his new work out into the world. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but for now, let's listen in to June's conversation with the composer Jake Hagee. the best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com working. Rules and restrictions may apply. Who are you and what do you do? My name is Jake Heggie and I am a composer. I write operas and art song primarily, but also some chamber music, solo music, choral music, bunch of stuff. Wow. So composer is one of those jobs that, like writer... It takes a certain amount of confidence or like self-assurance to even decide that it's something you want to pursue. Like just saying I'm a can feel like a lot. How did you decide that it was something you wanted to pursue? I think I knew from a very early age. My dad listened to a lot of jazz, uh, big band. So Ella Fitzgerald, Joe Stafford, those were my uh, first people. And then uh, Barbara Streisand, Julie <laughs> Andrews, because I loved musicals. And I started taking piano lessons at an early age, but it was uh, my father committed suicide when I was 10. And my mother had four kids to raise when she was 39. Mm. And music became not only my refuge, my safe place, but it was 
these were my people. Mm-hmm. You know, my people didn't just include a few classmates who also had music. They included Beethoven and Schubert and Chopin. I felt like those were my mentors, mm-hmm. even at 10, 11 years old. And so it was very natural for me to want to write. And I found manuscript paper at a music store one day and I asked the guy what this was and he said oh that's so you can write music and I said oh can you do that and he said yes so I started writing songs for Barbara Streisand first and solo piano pieces and then it went from there but it always felt very natural for me I'm someone who really loves analog tools I'm always surrounded by fountain pens and paper and I read that you are adamant about writing your music by hand, as it were. Is that true? And and if so, why is that important to you? Oh, yes. I write everything by hand, from the sketches at the beginning to the final draft and orchestration and any corrections, all by hand. I'm very tactile. Mm -hmm. Music is very tactile to me, being connected to an instrument, being connected to a pencil. Uh, and feeling the paper, making a mess is central to creativity and certainly to composition. Mm -hmm. And I have never had the interest in learning one of the music writing programs. And I've been lucky enough that I'm able to include a budget in my projects to send that off. So I write it uh, on the paper. I send it off to my copyist and publications rep, Bill Holub, and and, uh, he sends it back. And then, you know, it's... uh, But I've thought about learning and been a little embarrassed that I don't know it. Uh, but then I thought, why am I embarrassed? This is as I'm very, very productive this yes, way. It yes. hasn't slowed me down. <laughs> yes. Amen. And so but but that's unusual, is it? Most people write in these programs? Yes. And I actually do think there is an issue with that. I, I, I mentor a lot of younger mm-hmm. composers and I go to schools and, and talk to young composers. And I think there's a step missing in the connection to your work. I think once you know who you are as an artist, that you have a great sense of who you are as a person, as an individual, and you have a voice, then by all means, yes, use the tools. But I think when you're trying to figure that out, getting to know yourself is getting to know yourself on the page, Mm -hmm. too. And I think there's sometimes young composers can be misled because it looks perfect on the screen and it looks Mm -hmm. perfect when it's printed out. And it's not done. It's it's like an early draft, and but yeah. they think it looks perfect. So I think there's a step missing to finding your own personality on the page. So you talked about kind of feeling that you were a composer and mm-hmm. feeling that that was your... But, you know, you also talked about writing for Barbara Streisand. Uh, how did you decide that your calling was to classical music, to opera, to art song? Storytellers who are singers have always been primary to me from mm. day one. I mentioned Ella Fitzgerald, Joe mm. Stafford, and then Streisand and Julie Andrews and Carly Simon, Linda Ronstadt. I knew about them before I knew about any opera singers. And so I was drawn to tell stories inspired by their voices, the way they inhabited and delivered a song. And I think when I started hearing classical singing, and that was in my late teens, when I started having actual composition lessons. And I had a great teacher, Ernst Bacon, who wrote a lot for The Voice. And uh, he introduced me to some of these uh, recordings and performances that I'd never imagined. And suddenly it was the storytelling and the singing, but times a thousand and no microphone. It was just mind blowing. And then when I was 
18, I moved to Paris right after high school and lived there for two years and experienced everything I could and heard some of the greatest singers in the world. And the theatricality of their performances just by singing and standing there was incredible. I hadn't been able to go see Streisand or anyone in concert, you know. (laughs) Otherwise, maybe I'd taken a totally different uh, direction. But something resonated deeply within me in terms of that music, that world of music. And so I knew I wanted to write for singers and classical musicians because they had become my heroes. But I didn't know that I would ever be able to do that as a career. And I was actually moving in that direction in my 20s when I developed a hand injury. Mm. I developed what's called a focal dystonia. So my hand started to curl into a fist. Oh, my goodness. And uh, I knew I had to do something else. And so my entire identity was shattered. I was also uh, struggling with being gay during the peak of the AIDS crisis. So there were a lot of identity crises going on at the same time. Mm. And I eventually... I did some retraining over years and moved to San Francisco and I got a job at the San Francisco Opera in the PR marketing department and started meeting the greatest singers in the world who, lo and behold, are really wonderful, fun people (laughs) who wouldn't want to work with them and write for them. And I was inspired anew. And so this uh, idea of being a full-time composer that maybe I even deserved that title, which I dealt with so much shame uh, in my teens and 20s that I didn't think I deserved any of that. So coming around to it psychologically, emotionally, to think of myself as a composer who had something to say and that these singers wanted to champion was extraordinary. It was like waking up and uh, and it was a coming out of a different way, you know? I wanna talk in a little bit about a recent work of yours, Songs for Murdered Sisters, but I was lucky enough to watch a filmed version of that piece uh, and of course, you were playing piano, and I've heard you play piano on, on other albums. You, you recently did an album with Jamie Barton, who was a early guest on Working. So I'm mentioning that because you play the piano just beautifully. So I, I'm gathering that your hand problem fixed itself, or how would you describe that? I would say it didn't fix itself. I had to <laughs> retrain <laughs> pretty rigorously, Good point. and it Good meant. Point. It meant starting, though, with scales. I mean, I was 28, 29 years old, and I had to go back to C major scale. Slow, steady, no tension. And uh, the teacher that I was working with said, look, this is going to be hard for you, but you have to be patient. You have to learn this technique, this new technique, and you will never be able to play all the pieces you played before because muscle memory will bring up the problem again. And lucky for me, the piano literature is vast, and the song literature is vast, and I write a lot of my own stuff, so I'm not playing something that I played before. Yeah. Another reason I wanted to move from Los Angeles to San Francisco, in addition that I love San Francisco, uh, was because once you're identified as an injured musician, it's very hard Mm. uh, to enter that world ever again. Mm. And so up in San Francisco, nobody knew me. And when I started playing, nobody questioned, nobody said, oh, I had heard you were injured and now you're playing again. No, no one said that. So they just took it at face value. And that was very helpful to me in that, in that period. But great singers started asking me to play for them. Um, I did a lot of concerts with Frederica von Stade. 
I wrote for Renee Fleming, for Dawn oh Upshaw, goodness. for just incredible artists, and they yeah. were they were taking me seriously. So I thought I better start taking myself seriously. But it was it was a long haul. Several of the the people that you named and Jamie Barton, who we talked about earlier, are mezzos, and I know Songs for Murdered Sisters is with a baritone. Are there particular voices that you are particularly drawn to? Or is it just a coincidence that you mentioned various mezzos and so on? No, I am definitely drawn to the mezzos. Uh, And I have a feeling it's because early on, the singers that I listened to, Streisand would be a high mezzo. (laughs) Julie Andrews is a soprano, but all the musical theater she did was Mm. in sort of a mezzo-ish range. Mm. And same with a lot of the big band singers that I would hear on my dad's albums. You know, all that was ingrained in me. And uh, and so I'm just naturally drawn to it. Also, what I love about the mezzo voice is throughout the range, you can understand the words. They don't have yeah. to sort of manipulate the sound and the vowels as much as, you know, higher voice types. Same thing with baritones. You know, you, you hear what the words are throughout the throughout the range. And I don't know. I'm just really drawn to those voice types. So a lot of my operas feature those voice types prominently and a lot of songs as well. A lot of songs and operas that feature mezzos in particular. I also think I'm uh, I'm a feminist, a diehard feminist, and I was raised around very strong women, especially you know like my mother, and so I like featuring strong uh, women in my songs and operas too. I'm in such awe, and so any chance to work with these powerful, amazing women is is a real joy for me. And I think any project before, if I'm going to say yes. The first thing I need to feel is that shiver of recognition, that shiver that is music. I don't know what the music is. I just know it's there. And it's at that point that it's not even that I I, I want to write it. I I have to write this. You know, it goes beyond that. So there's it, this sense of passion and possibility that is vibrating in certain projects. You know, composers of opera art songs typically work with the librettist, the the writer of the words, but librettist has to be one of the smaller job pools in the world. I mean, there just aren't that many people making a living writing libretti. And you've worked with some extraordinary writers, novelist, and certainly in the beginning of her career, poet Margaret Atwood, playwright Terence McNally, you've had some remarkable collaborations with. You've also, of course, set music to the work of dead poets. Um, Yes. (laughs) Do you have a theory of what makes a writer a good librettist? Because, you know, Terence McNally is a playwright. Margaret Atwood is a novelist. How do you know that they'll produce work that will resonate for you? It's an instinct, like so much of the arts is, is instinct. But also, these are people who understand that what they write has to demand music. It has to Mm. demand music to be complete, to be told, on its own, it doesn't work. It has to have music to fu- be fully realized. And Terence McNally, as a great playwright, loved the opera, you know, loved great singers, and was a devoted uh, opera goer. And so, you know, and that was my first librettist, and that was for Dead Man Walking. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never written an opera. <laughs> and uh, But he told me very clearly said look I'm not a librettist by trade I'm a playwright but what I'm going to try to do is give you characters 
and scaffolding and structure and scenes that inspire you. The goal is to inspire music. He goes, and the libretto is not in shape until you feel inspired to write music and the music is leading. And he goes, and when the music is leading, that might mean a lot of things need to change. And he said, I'm flexible. Change the words, change the scene. If something isn't singing, that means we get, need to cut it and find something else. But the goal is for the music to lead. And I thought that was incredibly generous and also inspiring and liberating for me. It meant I could really just let my imagination go wild. I think a bad libretto is one where the librettist says, here are the words, this is it, set this, that's it, period. Mm -hmm. And that that's not a collaboration. And that's not what opera is. That's not what theater is. Theater is all about collaboration. And the people that I find that I work with, they inspire me and make my work better, I think. And I hope I do the same for them. Uh, I, I also work very closely with a man named Gene Shearer, who um, we've written, I don't know, seven, six operas together, seven operas together, <laughs> full length ones, and then some short ones and like 50 songs. And there's a momentum you, you develop as a creative team, you know, that there's a reason Rodgers and Hammerstein stayed, mm -hmm, you know, kept mm -hmm. writing together because you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. And there's so much that is uncertain when you begin a project that to have as many certain things in place as possible is enormously helpful mm. um, because it's terrifying. It's supposed to be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with the composer Jake Heggie after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Every week on Working, we talk to interesting people about their jobs. But one of our goals for the show is to help our listeners, meaning you, with your own creative processes. Ask us about anything, getting inspired, getting paid, getting better at whatever it is you do. You can reach us at working at slate.com or leave us a message at 304-933-WORK. If you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's hear more of June's conversation with composer Jake Hagee. Let's talk about this amazing work, Songs for Murdered Sisters. Well, first of all, why don't you tell us what that project is about and, and why you were drawn to it, perhaps? We were in, in the process of rehearsing a new opera five years ago in Houston, at the Houston Grand Opera, called uh, based on It's a Wonderful Life. And Josh Hopkins was, uh, had a role in it, Harry Bailey. And he pulled me aside and he asked if we could have lunch and he could talk to me about something. And I, I said, sure. And he's a baritone that I really, really admire, a beautiful voice and a, and a beautiful soul. And he said, okay, so a year ago, um, my sister was murdered 
by her ex the same day that he went on a rampage and murdered all three of his exes in Canada. And I was devastated to hear it. And he, he said, and I'm having a hard time figuring out what I can do because you're frozen. She's gone. The murderer is being tried. Now what? Now what do I do? And he said, I feel like I need to use my creative and personal voice to speak out about what happened because gender-based violence, domestic violence is rampant everywhere, of course. But what could he do to make a difference? And so I said, I'm all in with you. I'm very inspired. I'm very moved by your story. Um, we're going to need new texts. I don't know what this piece is going to be, whether it's sort of a one-act opera or is it a big song cycle? What is it? But we need a brilliant writer to take us on this journey. And it should be a Canadian woman um, since we are two men and we want all the perspective represented. And I said, and I encourage you to think big. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, I don't know, Margaret Atwood, Katie Lang, you know, think about people <laughs> like this, you know, because he initially had suggested he had this friend of a friend who mm -hmm. writes poems. And I was like, no, 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 we need, if you want to make a big statement, let's think really big. And so he got connected uh, with Margaret Atwood and suddenly we were exchanging emails. It was <laughs> bizarre. Wow. Right? How, how am I exchanging emails with Margaret Atwood? Because um, I'm a huge fan of her. She is a genius, first class, uh, just yeah. incredible. And so this is about a year on from when we had that first conversation. And she's writing, well, I'm interested. I'm not saying that I'm doing it, but shouldn't there be a female voice involved? And I and we went back and forth and I said, voice, yeah, literally a singer. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, think of Winterreise, Schubert's Winterreise, mm -hmm. you know, uh, someone on a winter's journey trying to make sense of all the loss that they feel. And they look to nature, they look inward, they look around them and everything is resonating in a different way. I said, that's sort of Josh's journey without his sister, losing his mm -hmm. sister in this violent, awful way. Could I have done something? Could What could I have done? What could I do now? And then all of a sudden she writes back, well, I'm not saying that I'm doing it, but <laughs> there were several of those. And then finally, one night she said, well, I'm not saying I'm doing it, but what about something like this? <laughs> and there were these eight lyric poems that I, I read through them and I was shaking and sobbing. Mm. And I called Josh, and he was shaking and sobbing. And we wrote back to her, yes, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, no, I'm curious because you get eight poems that are incredibly moving mm -hmm. from Margaret Atwood, but are the words of Songs for Murdered Sisters the same as what came in in that email, or did they change? Did you edit Margaret Atwood? You know, it's very interesting. I didn't have to ask to change a single word. Oh, she Ooh. is so brilliant. And like I said, what she knew that these were going to be sung. And so she was thinking about how music changes things, how there has to be space just for solo moments, for instrumental moments, that everything she gave me is exactly uh, uh, what I said. Mm -hmm. I have never had that experience with a living writer. 
I've always had to ask for changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of relieved, actually. <laughs> like, how am I going to tell Margaret Atwood? I don't <laughs> but uh, she she was incredibly collaborative and supportive throughout. And um, we had a, a breakfast one day when we all happened to be in Houston, and uh, and she read them for me and for Josh, and we. You know, we just went from there. I knew Josh's voice and personality so well. I knew the story and the lyrics that she gave me were so clear. And there was so much space for music that I felt very uh, free to explore. Wow. And were you already thinking in whatever way you think about composing music before you got the words? Or did that only begin once you had those eight poems uh, in hand? Well, I certainly was curious. See, the thing is, I had the shiver because I knew the project was incredibly mm. important. Mm. And so with Margaret, the vibration was already there for something with great potential and beauty and power. Um, and when I got it, that's when the music started to unfold and reveal itself to me. And that's got kind it. of what it's like. It reveals itself. I just listen. And why don't we listen to the first piece from Songs for Murdered Sisters? My sister is now an empty chair, is no longer, is no longer there. Wow, that's really lovely. Now, this piece is something that's super personal to Joshua Hopkins. I mean, it's about his sister. Were you writing specifically for him or for a sort of generic baritone? Since I assume that at some point other people will be singing that. Or or did you create this exclusively for Josh and he's the only person who will ever sing it? Oh, no. It's meant to be a universal experience. But the only way you can create that is by making it very specific. Mm. Um, I have found. And this is our version of the setting of these poems. If someone else eventually wants to try setting those poems and Margaret is open to it, then yes, another ver- vision of those will happen. But who knows what whether a piece will have a life or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't get to decide that. Other people get to decide that. So <laughs> making it the best it can be and writing it with great clarity for the person who will first inhabit it is everything. I have to say, when I'm writing operas, I'm writing the role, but I know who I'm dressing it on for the first time. And so this is kind of a role for Joshua, even though it's the, it is him and it's his personal journey. But, you know, Margaret invented these things. She didn't, you know, Josh didn't write it. Margaret mm. wrote it. Mm. So, again, there's another perspective coming in. But to make it as personal as possible and as vivid as possible for Josh, that means it can be broad. It can mean many things for many people. So this is just one of the many performing arts project that was upended by COVID. Um, you know, the the piece didn't premiere in the way that was expected, anticipated. Can you kind of explain how that played out? And were you happy with that method of premiering a, a major work? Yes. I finished the songs at the end of February last year. <laughs> end of February in 20, yes. <laughs> right oh. before. I'm so grateful I did because I actually mm. hit a big roadblock during uh, the middle of last year. I found it very challenging to write anything. Um, so I was really glad I finished those when I did. 
um, and sent them to Josh. And we were supposed to premiere them in Houston. Houston Grand Opera had commissioned the cycle, and we were going to premiere them at the Rothko Chapel down there. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's amazing. These huge, the, dark yeah. Rothko paintings all over the walls. It's this amazing meditative space. But it was. It became clear that was not going to happen. And they had started, you know, filming things, and they wanted to film this. And I thought, I, if we're going to do that, I don't want it just to be piano voice and a stationary camera. Like mm. I just, if we're going to use visual medium, then let's use the language of the camera and of film. And so I asked them if uh, I could, you know, work with a local director, Jamie Niebuhr, who I really believe in. And if we could try to find a way to create like an art film of this, not just a film of a recital, but like a, an artful presentation of it. And they were all all in and we found very supportive donors to, to help us uh, put it together. And then Jamie had this vision and we used the abandoned uh, train station in Oakland and he brought in a massive crew. I mean, I can't even tell you how many cameras and lights were there. It was amazing. Wow. But it was during COVID, so everyone had to be masked and distanced mm -hmm. and tested mm -hmm. every day. Um, I was thrilled with how it <laughs> came out. And I don't ever want to do you know, uh, a recorded thing another way because if we're going to use, you know, I've seen so many recitals online now, and as yeah. grateful as I am for the talent involved, when you're using a visual medium, you want to use the language of the camera to tell the mm -hmm. story too. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a big revelation for uh, opera companies and other other uh, classically based organizations that let the camera do some of the storytelling as well. So you have composed several operas, six, seven, uh, including Dead Man Walking, uh, which I've seen described as the most performed American opera of our time. Uh, you've written more than one piece about domestic abuse, Songs for Murdered Sisters, which we've discussed, and again, I believe, is also on that theme. Uh, you wrote music about 9-11. Now, of course, I'm picking selectively from your oeuvre, but would it be true to say that you're drawn to big, heavy themes? I'm drawn to big human themes. Mm big transformative events that we can all connect with in some way, things that feel very much of our time and yet are timeless, mm. um, things that feel, because I was born and raised in this country, things that feel very American and yet are universal. Mm. I can't write a piece about the death penalty. I can't write a piece about domestic violence, but I can write a piece about people who are experiencing that. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of the line for me. I. I Big transformative events, intimate stories with large forces at work that are beyond our control. I find those very, very inspiring and certainly uh, operatic. And when I'm also when I'm writing, you know, especially I write a lot for singers, of course, mostly. Mm -hmm. I want things that would make sense to be sung and that where the emotion is big enough to fill an opera house or to fill a concert hall, you yeah. know. Does that limit the kinds of moods that you can work in? I mean, levity and, and fun and silliness are, of course, a huge tradition in opera. You know, they're just the weird, you know, there's a lot of farce in opera. Um, yes. And I, I've, I'm sorry to say I've never seen Dead Man Walking, but um, I'm having a hard time picturing a lot of levity. Um, and yet there is, because ah, that's very good. human. Yeah. That's very human. And that's yeah. when, you know, 
it puts the audience at ease, it puts the characters on stage at ease, and it's just natural to go to humor in very difficult moments. Uh, you know, my, one of my heroes, Stephen Sondheim, is genius at this. You know, yeah. when things are really dark, suddenly there's you, you laugh out loud. Um, <laughs> but it's critical, and I think even in Songs for Murdered Sisters, there's a wonderful memory of a dream where he's remembering playing with his sister and all the fun that they had and calling out to each other. And it is summer. I don't know the future, not in my dream. There have to be lighter moments to make us realize what was lost and what's at stake. Um, the joy and the beauty that can't happen now because of what has taken place. Yeah, I mean, also, not to get too personal, but after what you told me about your father, that mm -hmm. has to be, like, that's more than just a casual storyline to you, right? Oh, I yeah. I, I can write from personal experience. Um, big issues like this, yeah, they speak mm -hmm. to me. I mean, I've lived through them, and maybe it's yeah. my own way of of processing and working it out, but, you know... I don't know that there's so much of that because I love every single character. I have to be every character. Yeah, yeah. I've never been a Catholic nun who's a spiritual advisor <laughs> to a, a death row inmate. And yet I, I think I wrote one pretty successfully. And the same yeah. with like a, a convicted murderer or a one-legged sea captain. You know, <laughs> I haven't been any of those things, but, you know. <laughs> not yet. It's, it, yeah, right, not yet. It's, it, and yet it's, it's because it's a human story. It's a human experience. Yeah. It's a human being. And my job as a theater composer is to empathize and listen and respond. And that's what I try to put on the page. I try not to do it premeditated. I try to let it just emerge and let things surprise me the way they will surprise the audience. So mm -hmm. if a big theme or a big tune emerges, it is as much a surprise to me as anyone. Um, I am enormously grateful when the big tune emerges. <laughs> um, and I will maximize that big tune. <laughs> But uh, you know, it's usually in the moment. Um, I do get a lot of ideas just walking, walk a lot all over San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so I'll sing ideas into my phone when they come to me. But part of it is showing up every day and just listening to these characters and letting, the, letting them tell me how they want it to go. That's amazing. I have to tell you, too, um, because we talk every week to people about their creative process, so many people talk about singing into their phone. I swear that, like, what do people do before people could sing into their phones? Um, I, had, I had actually a little portable recorder <laughs> I would carry around. <laughs> Remember the days of the Walkman and the, yes, <laughs> and yes. even before then, they were like little yeah. little recorders you could carry around. But yeah, yeah. I've always been singing into something. <laughs> Jake Heggie, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to talk with you. Great to be with you today, June. Thank you. <laughs> this is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, 
The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. June, at this point in my tenure on this show, you'd think that I would stop marveling at how <laughs> I find hearing artists talk about their work informs how I think about my own. I mean, in some ways, that's sort of like the crux of our entire show. <laughs> However, I don't do anything like composing, but I was so struck by hearing Heggie speak of the necessity for him of making his notations by hand instead of via computer. Music is tactile, is what he said. And though I write on a computer, I also often write with my hands, and I certainly revise with my hands. And I kind of know just what he means when he says that it's only when you're working with your hands that you can see what's wrong with the work. Yeah, I also was really struck by that. I'm a great lover of analog tools myself. And so I could really relate to that observation. I think he said that making a mess is central to creativity. And in my head, at least, that feels really relevant because when I'm trying to write something, the fact that a messy first draft looks really similar on the screen of my laptop anyway to a finished work that's been refined and edited and gone through like a million revisions, it makes it really hard for me to just get that first version out of my head. It just never seems quite good enough. So I find it easier to have that first struggle on paper, somehow seeing all those false starts and crossings out and all that, you know, the working out of things makes me feel better about the ideas and the way that I'm trying to shape them. And I mean, I love the convenience of the computer, not only for what I guess we used to call word processing, but for you know, keeping track of ideas and thoughts and everything. But I do admire Jake for his all analog stance. That's pretty bold. At the same time, we hear him talk about his relationship to his phone as a tool yes. for kind of capturing stuff on the fly. So it's not that he has some kind of line in the sand that like creative work can never involve these tools. And I appreciate that balance too, yeah. but that like when it comes to really putting the notes down on the paper, he needs to be doing that with his hand. There's something there, there's a resonance there. I, I sort of understood it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, it's not that he's a Luddite. That's clearly yeah. not the case. It's yeah. just that he just likes that that physical thing. And I, I loved, too, hearing the story about like when he was a kid finding manuscript paper and learning that, no, you can yeah. write this yourself. Like, like, what, what, cool what is this? I know. That was a very sweet story. That is a yeah. very sweet story. Heggie said one other thing that I found really meaningful, that so much of the arts is about instinct. And I, I really think that's right. And this is something that I think Isaac and I have talked about so many times, that what education in the arts is mostly about is to help establish or fortify your own instinct. Yeah, I loved how he described the kind of buzz that he gets when he finds something that he knows he's going to enjoy working on. I mean, I guess that he's excited and he's enthused about something. And he's like, because you're going to spend a ton of time on it, right? You have to feel that connection. And that is indeed instinct, but it also comes from experience, from having written a lot of music, from having worked through problems, from having collaborated with lots of different people who each work in distinct ways. So, yeah, it's a buzz, but that instinct 
really works because you've already done the work. It's a muscle that you grow. Yes. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yes. yes. I think it was obviously key in a conversation with the composer to hear a bit of the music. And I really was moved by hearing even just a, a bit of songs from Murdered Sisters. I can't imagine what it would have been like to collaborate with Margaret Atwood, um, but I really appreciated Jake's sense when they were talking about, when he and his collaborator were talking about the search for a librettist, to truly think big, right? It doesn't get much bigger than Margaret Atwood. It's such a gutsy move, but it paid off. Yeah, no kidding. It really does sound like actionable advice. Like you have to have faith in yourself and the story you want to tell to reach out to someone whose work you just know is going to elevate a project. But I also have to say, I do think it's important to be realistic. Like, by all means, think big, but don't waste your time. You know, keep your ambition within the realm of possibility. Of course. I mean, he couldn't have sent a note to Margaret Atwood, you know, at the beginning of his career before yes. he had ever written a song. But, yes. you know, he has reached a point where he can make those kinds of connections. And Absolutely. he knows it. And I think that that's really, I, I like that advice. And I like that kind of confidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. You raised such an interesting point in this interview that the work, Songs for Murdered Sisters, is so deeply personal that it feels that it could only be sung by Joshua Hopkins, mm -hmm. who's, you know, because it tells the story of his own relationship with his own sister. I was so struck by what Heggie said in response, that the key to a universal subject is its specificity, that in telling the story of one man's grief, in this very particular set of circumstances, he created something, a work of art, that actually opens up to an audience. And that's what great art ought to do. Yeah, I love that too. There's something really striking about the way he put it. He can't write an opera about the death penalty. You can't write a song cycle about intimate partner violence, but he's inspired by stories about people whose lives are affected by those big issues. And he can write about that. And that's a really great way of thinking about creative writing, about really big subjects. Like, it has to be quite specific or else it's just too big to contemplate. Yeah, even even Steinbeck didn't just set out to write a novel of the Great Depression, right? He set out to not write a novel of a single family. Yeah. And that sort of makes it easier for you to think about tackling it. Yeah. June, I know that you're just back from vacation. Isaac is going on holiday soon. It's still a strange and uncertain time, but maybe that means we all need a break all the more. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering about how you use your time away, your time off the clock, mm -hmm. whether you ignore your email or whether you catch up on your work, you know, whether you spent some time thinking about the book you recently announced or just reading romance novels on the beach. <laughs> Um, the book I'm writing, uh, do you mean Where Are All the Lesbians? A Cultural History in Six Places, available from Seal Press in spring 2024. I, I did indeed sell that book right before my vacation, so I was thinking about it a lot, and partly because we were in Provincetown, which is an example of one of the places I'll be covering. Um, so I was in, I guess you could call it field observation mode, but I think the working from home era actually had even more of an impact on how I spent my vacation. I usually do do a little bit of work, you know, I'll just check Slack or just kind of take a look at my email. But even though I've been very lucky over the last year and working from home has been easy for me and actually kind of preferable in some ways, like it's easier for me to concentrate. But it did blur the separation between 
work and the rest of life. You know, if you don't have a commute, you don't leave the house. It's just easy to feel that every waking minute is about work. So for that reason, I did make more of an effort not to look at all those things uh, while I was on vacation. And that was great, even though it meant that catching up even after just five days away was a bit of a beast. There was a lot uh, that had built up over those days. We have a distorted relationship to work in this country. Yeah, we sure and did. we really do. And, you know, you know, I get that you're, you have a big job and you're an in-demand person inside <laughs> of Slate. But, you know, it should be part of the natural rhythms of our working lives that sometimes we're away and we need a day to catch up on whatever we missed while we were away. Absolutely. You know? I mean, there's some, I'm still very European in my love of vacations. It's just, oh my God. Like, like, and it's terrible when you're on vacation to think, oh, but if I don't look, it's going to be so awful when I get back. But you just have to kind of work through that <laughs> mentally at least <laughs> yeah. and just be prepared uh, for that big catch up. Um, now, before we sign off today, Ruman, you strike me as the perfect person to answer a question we received from listener Michael Starr. Now, he wrote this and uh, our producer Cameron Drews is going to read it for us. Yes. So Michael writes, good morning, Slate Working. Good morning, Michael. He writes, I began attempting to write fiction in graduate school and after several years I felt good enough about my work to attempt publishing. I placed three stories with very small literary magazines in the 90s. While I remain proud of this modest accomplishment, the weight of endless submission and rejection, along with the relentless march of life, finally wore me down, and I stopped submitting stories for publication. I never completely stopped writing creatively, but focused on other aspects of my life for decades. During COVID times, I looked back at my stories, many of which I still like after all of these years. I've written a couple new ones as well, and believe many of these are worthy of submission. But time and technology have swept along at such a rate that I'm not sure where to start. My last submissions were mailed with SASEs, which are self-addressed stamped envelopes, I believe. Uh, he says, I see a few webzines accept blind submissions at times, but I wonder if I'm not missing real opportunities to make my work more visible. Yeah, what do you think, Ramon? Michael also mentioned that he's a technical writer, so I'm sure he's capable of figuring out the tech of online submissions, but it is a whole new world. So what do you think? Should he put in the time and effort to submit to publications? And are there any resources you can recommend? You know, I think of this week's guest's uneasy relationship to oh, technology, yeah. right? Like, I get it. Technology changes very quickly, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed, especially when it involves your creative work, right? So writing music using your computer is quite different from making a Facebook account so you can keep in touch with the relatives, right? And yeah. so this note isn't really about how technology affects the writer's creative practice. Mm. It's about how it affects the business of being a writer, and I do think that, unfortunately, it's incumbent on most artists, save a handful of really successful ones, to learn to adapt. You know, mm. you have to, unless you are J.K. Rowling or Stephen King with a team of assistants and people who can help you negotiate a changing landscape, you're on your own. Mm. The good news is that it's really relatively simple and ask. 
the technology that most literary magazines use to handle submissions was designed for artists, so it's pretty forgiving. I think it's thrilling that this writer feels ready to start trying to publish again after a fallow period, and it would be absurd to let a fear over technology nip that dream in the bud, you know? So my advice would be to start reading, you know, the many publications that are new since he was last sending out stories, the ones that are still around, see which ones would be a good fit for your work and figure out how they prefer to look at submissions. I think if you're going to sort of face your demon with technology, I would also consider making a Twitter account, which (laughs) sounds really awful, but, you know, hear me out. Like, you don't have to tweet. You can just follow all of these magazines and their editors. You can follow other writers. You can learn about contests and calls for submissions and theme issues and readings and events. I personally have not submitted my own work in a while, but most of the magazines I dealt with, you know, the handful of years ago, which was the last time I did, they all used the same software. And honestly, it's not rocket science. I mean, I can barely use our Apple TV. Like, barely. (laughs) My kids get so mad at me because I can barely figure out how to use it. I'm really an idiot when it comes to technology. So if I could figure out this particular program, which is called Submittable, I really think anyone can. And then I think you just have to start submitting, you know? The technology might be new, but the sting of rejection and the triumph of publication are going to be just as you remember them. Roman, that is amazing advice, both practical and and psychological. That's great. (laughs) I, I hope that helps, Michael. Thank you. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. And I think I also think that it's really uh, worth saying that I think it's so exciting that he feels this way about his own work. Mm. And the truth is that it's easy to look at any competitive field and like look at what's out there and feel like there's no place for you. But the people who have found a place there have found it because they insisted on it. Yeah. And that sometimes the insistence is just as simple as saying, I'm going to learn how to submit my stories. Wow. Yes, absolutely. That's, that's a really great point. We hope you've enjoyed this show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, then you'll never miss an episode. And I'm going to give you one final Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, access to all the articles on Slate.com without hitting a paywall ever, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new show Big Mood, Little Mood. But I also hope you'd like to support the work that we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. Thank you to Jake Heggie for being our guest this week. And as always, thanks to our producer, the stupendous Cameron Drews. Please make sure to tune in next week for Roman's conversation with the artist Shazia Sikanda. Until then, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs>